Good morning to you, my Patriot friends. Welcome to My Patriot Brain, the show that creates action potentials of patriotism. I'm your host, Dr. Robert Mather. Today is Thursday, October 26th, 2023. As always, I am coming to you from behind the MPS, Behavioral Science Analytics Microphone. Thank you for downloading this episode. My Patriot Brain is recorded live and published twice a week, every Monday and Thursday morning on Spotify and iHeartRadio. show is also available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. Follow My Patriot Brain on Spotify and share the show with your friends, your loved ones, your family members, your enemies, and anyone else you can think of who needs inside my Patriot Brain. Go to my, go to my website, theconservativesocialpsychologist.com for free content. I've got articles and all kinds of stuff on there, um, free articles. Uh, I don't make any money off of it. Uh, click on the link to the, my True Social account where I post articles related to this show. Uh, even if you don't have a True Social account, you can go there and view the, the articles that I put on there that I talk about on the show, uh, along with some other things, too. Uh, my website, you can also find my book, Implicit Biases and the Unconscious, Liberal Biases and Racial Prejudice and Politics, which is available exclusively at barnesandnoble.com. Uh, follow me on True Social and Rumble. I am at CSPsychOK on True Social, and I am the conservative social psychologist on Rumble. Uh, Major League Baseball news. Uh, World Series is set. Arizona Diamondbacks will play the Texas Rangers in the World Series. Uh, the Rangers haven't been to the World Series since 2011. They won pennant, American League pennants in 2010 and 2011. Uh, they lost in 2010. I, I could get the dates wrong. I don't have this written down. Uh, they lost to the Cardinals and the Giants in those two, those two years. Um, I think, anyway, so they lost, so the Rangers never won a World Series. Uh, I'm a big Rangers fan, so I'm excited to see them play in the World Series. Uh, Diamondbacks, I believe, last won the World Series in 2001, uh, which was one of their very first years of existence. They got there pretty quickly. Uh, Bob Brindley was the manager back when Arizona won that one over the Yankees. Uh, anyway, so game of 2023 World Series, game one, is in Texas on Friday night, 7.03 p.m. Central Time on Fox. Uh, game two will also be in Texas, Saturday, 7.03 p.m. Central Time on Fox. Uh, usually that's not first pitch. Usually first pitch is around 7.25 or 7.23. Uh, they have got usually have about 20 minutes of introductions where they bring all the players out, um, at least for the first World Series game uh, of the series. Uh, anyway, so expect that. College football news, AP top five rankings. Uh, Georgia is number one, followed by Michigan, Ohio State, Florida State, and Washington rounds out the top five. Uh, number six, University of Oklahoma plays at Kansas, 11 a.m. Central Time on Fox. Uh, OU is a 10-point favorite. Uh, Los the, the Rams play at the Cowboys uh, in NFL football, uh, noon Central Time on Fox. Uh, Dallas is a six-point favorite in that game. Uh, as we've seen, uh, being a favorite doesn't necessarily mean, mean you'll win. Uh, coming back from the airport last night, uh, I stopped at the you know, the airport toll booth, there, was two, there were two things that were open up, two lanes open, things, lanes, whatever, uh, lanes that were open up, and they were manned by people, right? There's people inside the lanes, but there's also the automated machine that you can go through and do all your stuff. And so you know, I got in the lane and watched person after person fight their way through that automated machine to get their receipt and all that stuff. And uh, I pulled right past that machine, which I've you know, fought in the past, and pulled up to the person, and there was a, a, an older lady in there. Uh, super nice. And she turned, she was like, thank you so much for coming. And I said, you know what? I said, I will pass up that machine to get to a human being every time. Uh, and she's like, hardly anybody does that. She's like, I sit here and, and I just watch people use the machine. And like nobody can. I said, well, you know, I, it's faster for me to use the person. Uh, and it's far more enjoyable than the machine. So anyway, all the things we talk about with AI replacing things and technology replacing things, we talked a lot about that 
on this podcast in different um, different episodes. Uh, and it was just very comforting for me to see a human being there that I got to skip the machine uh, that was supposed to be there for my convenience. Uh, I got to skip the machine. I got to go to the person. I got to have a nice interaction with the human being uh, who's doing their job. Uh, and I got to get in and out faster. Uh, I do the same thing. At a, there's a parking lot that I go to, too, where you can use the machine. And I watch people struggle and fight the machine and figure things out. And then they always have a parking attendant who will scan things and do them for you when you go out that exit. I always go out that exit and talk to the person and have a very pleasant conversation with the same gentleman every time. Uh, and uh, Anyway, I, I'm all for people. I like people. People are important. That's why I've made my whole whole business in psychology is I find people fascinating. I think they're important to the equation. Uh, okay, so speaking of people, uh, I'm going to appear on a podcast tomorrow, um, the Dr. Johan Souza podcast. Uh, it's available on Spotify. Uh, I'm really excited to do it. I think it'll be about a 30, 40 minute interview, maybe an hour. Um, anyway, excited to do that. So maybe check check out his podcast on that. Um, his podcast is described as virtuous leaders, successful psychologists, and interesting people. And I don't know that I fit into any three of those categories. I'm not a virtuous leader. I'm not a successful psychologist. And I don't know that I'm an interesting person. Uh, so I'm not sure how I found my way into that, but it should be fun. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I've had conversations with him before. He's a fantastic uh, conservative psychologist. And I'm looking forward to um, the, the exchange. Uh, always good to talk to him. And, y- and you all can, can watch slash listen to it. I think it's a video podcast. So um, it is a video podcast. So I'll be able to. Uh, you'll be able to watch and listen to me. Uh, other news, uh, Texas border. Uh, and from the article, um, here's why Texas is suing the Biden administration, uh, October 25th, by Madeline Leesman on town hall. Um, basically, it outlines um, exactly what it says, why Texas is suing the Biden administration. But, uh, of course, Texas has been trying to secure its borders. Uh, the federal government has not been enforcing federal law, and the Biden administration has been letting people through and actively sabotaging the state of Texas. I've talked about this in the past. Uh, when Texas put up uh, the uh, floating barriers, um, the feds, feds went out and took them down. Uh, won't let Texas defend its own Texas border. Uh, when Texas put up razor wire on a fence inside of the federal fence, uh, the feds came and snipped the, snipped the wires and cut them all down. Uh, they're actively sabotaging the United States. Uh, so Texas is suing. Uh, and uh, you know, at the very minimum, right, the federal government is uh, destroying state government property when they do those things. Um, so in addition to not enforcing federal law, I think they're actively uh, sabotaging the property of the state of Texas. And of course, the main part is that they're inhibiting Texas from defending its own borders. Uh, so be interesting to see where this goes, right? I don't know that the supremacy clause allows um, the federal government to interfere in such a way. I mean, it, it might allow the, the federal government to not let Texas use, defend the border on at the actual border where the federal government is at, but it will sure, surely the supremacy clause will not affect anything inside that line that is the state of Texas. We'll see how that plays out. Uh, another article, I, and I posted that article on my true social for you to read too. Uh, another one I post on my true social and uh, has to do with that that old uh, DC fire alarm trick. Pull the fire alarm, delay the vote, get more time to look over the stuff. That's what Representative Jamal Bowman was trying to do, uh, allegedly. Uh, the article is as Representative Representative Jamal Bowman charged being charged with violation of DC code for pulling fire alarm by Rebecca Downs Town Hall, uh, October twenty fifth, two thousand and twenty three. Uh, and so he, apparently he is going to be charged um, 
in DC municipal court um, with pulling that fire alarm. It'll be interesting to see. It can be, I think, I don't, I don't have the article in front of me. I think it's up to 60 days in jail uh, and maybe a $6,000 fine. I could be wrong on those things. Those are the details I'm trying to remember. Um, of course, I doubt he'll have any jail time, um, probably a pretty small fine. I think his office came out and said uh, that he'll, he'll be happy to pay the fine and move on. Uh, I think the bigger problem is uh, should be what they find internally in the investigation in Congress, because I think they've, it sounds like there's enough evidence to show that he did that on purpose to delay the vote. That should hold him in uh, some pretty serious charges with the rest of the House. Uh, so hopefully that gets pursued and, and he gets more than just sanctioned, um, you know, kicked off of committees. I don't, I don't know what they can do. I mean, they can do a lot of things to him. Um, but Republicans are oftentimes quite spineless and don't necessarily do the things that they probably ought to do to defend themselves. Uh, okay, so I was having a discussion um, this weekend about uh, you know, gender studies and critical race theory type um, curriculum that's infiltrated um, all of our schools and, and is indoctrinating our students. And I, I think it's interesting because if you, if you go back to, you know, my career in education goes back, you know, over two decades and thinking then as a student before that. But if you start looking at um, how critical thinking was um, deployed into the curriculum, right? So critical thinking skills. And the idea was you don't have to have an extra class for this. We can integrate this into the curriculum across all different types of classes. And they did that effectively. Uh, and the same thing came after that. It was like, well, if we can do that with critical thinking, we can do that with multicultural stuff. And so people said, okay, yeah, we can, you can have some different, more multicultural examples in your classes, whatever the topic is. Like you can have some more of that stuff. And that wasn't a bad idea either. Um, but I think what it showed the progressives was that, okay, hey, we don't have to have separate classes on this stuff, which is where gender studies developed out of, right? Um, whole programs on that. We don't have to have separate, you know, separate departments, separate um, classes for these things. If we want to add it, we can, inf we can infuse it into the curriculum, just like they did with critical thinking. And we can, and now that multicultural, uh, you know, multicultural perspectives are, are coming into the curriculum, uh, in a very tame way, we can kind of grab a hold of that uh, and hijack that um, and then have our stuff wherever we want it. And I think that became part of their their playbook was to fully infiltrate curriculum, um, not not do it in a way that creates a new class, a new teacher, a new line. You can do that stuff too, but but the infiltration of it really comes at the at the curriculum level. And then suddenly mandating that. Uh, it's it's a good tactic. It's working for them. We've got to we've got to push back. Another article I posted on my True Social uh, uh, has to do with the uh, Air Force, um, you know, security. I guess you'd say I, I posted on my True Social. It's Air Force police open fire on driver attempting to run gate of Texas base by Michael Lee, October twenty fifth, two thousand twenty three, Fox News. Uh, so a man tried to just run drive past the uh, the security gates uh, into. He did not get access to the training areas on the base. Uh, he was also not injured. Apparently, they fired at him and unsuccessfully I and mean, they didn't stop him he just i guess turned around and left the base uh, he was later arrested for something else by san antonio police um, that's concerning that some of our military uh, facilities are that easy to gain access to like he got in they said he didn't get access to training areas but their job was to uh, you know shoot him and stop him from gaining entry when he ran the barrier uh, and apparently they didn't weren't able to do that like he left on his own turned around and left and was not injured by the shootout the shootout was one way. They were shooting at him. It didn't stop him. Uh, that's concerning. 
Um, uh, it's always concerning, I think, when anybody can can breach our military faci- facilities or our White House or anything, right? Uh, it's anybody apparently can just drive into a military base, turn around, drive back, and leave past secure checkpoints where people are shooting at you, and be fine. And you can apparently just go into the White House and leave your cocaine wherever you want to. Uh, no one will ever know who did it. Um, okay, I posted an article again on True Social. This has to, this was Brian uh, Brian. Uh, this was uh, an article in uh, True Social called Hakeem Jeffries' words on Hamas are meaningless until he calls out Rashida Tlaib on her comments October 25th, 2023 in Red State by Thomas LaDuke. And I've, I've pointed you to his radio show before. I point, I've discussed some of his articles before. Awesome writer. Enjoy his perspective. Uh, and really, this is kind of setting up the fact that, you know, Jeffries came out and said he supports Israel. Uh, Hamas is bad and that kind of stuff. But he won't call out Rashida Tlaib or some of the others on their comments that are very pro-Palestine. Uh, and so he kind of speaks out of both sides of his mouth, which reminds me of a post that Donald Trump, a truth post that he put up uh, referring to Jeffries. So Trump put this up. This was from um, this was from uh, Jeffries' account. Like So uh, you know, Hakeem Jeffries' account said had posted... Uh, we will never bend the knee to the election deniers who poison our democracy, right? Because he stands for all the greatness, which is don't question elections. But Trump also retruthed uh, the February 2016 or February 16, 2018, so two years after the 2016 election, uh, Hakeem Jeffries' post that says, quote, the more we learn about the 2016 election, the more illegitimate, all capitals, to be dramatic, the more illegitimate it becomes. America deserves to know whether we have a fake, all capitals, because they're, they're divas, uh, a fake president in the Oval Office, hashtag Russian interference, and then he had a, a Washington Post link uh, to an article. Uh, so I assume, again, uh, you know, Jeffries is talking about those election deniers that poison our democracy. He's talking about himself. Uh, he's quite the hypocrite, right? Uh, we do have a new speaker in the, in the uh, we do have a new speaker. Uh, Excited that we've got somebody that's apparently, you know, uh, in the same kind of bulldog vein as Jim Jordan. Uh, Matt Gates uh, on, on his True Social posted yesterday uh, this. He said, under the leadership of the newly ex- elected Speaker Mike Johnson, the House of Representatives passed a bipartisan resolution of reaffirming the United States support for Israel. I'm proud to co-sponsor this resolution to clearly express that Israel has a right to exist against bloodthirsty terrorists like Hamas. Uh, of course, Gates initiated this whole thing by calling for McCarthy to be ousted. He got McCarthy ousted, and then we've spent three weeks um, sorting out some internal business in the Republican Party uh, in a very high-profile way. Um, one part of me says, you know, that's fine that they weren't getting stuff done because, you know, we're, we're government minimalists, so we don't want to see a lot of government activity. But we have to really spend that time counteracting what the Democrats are doing with their big government progressive agendas. And so the Democrats are fine with us not doing stuff because every minute we're not doing things when we have a Republican House uh, is time ticking off the clock for them to run out and try to get a new election cycle, and we're not getting stuff done when we have the chance. Uh, we fall for that every time, and I, unfortunately, this is a theme about how our conservative Republicans and the rhinos fall for these tricks every time and go for it. But we did need to, in fact, sort some things out, and I do think that McCarthy needed to go. Uh, he was compromising too much. The Democrats don't compromise. We compromise. That's We're the only ones that compromise. 
uh, and he was just not hardline enough on everything that we needed, uh, and we weren't getting our stuff done. So I do feel like that three weeks was hopefully well spent um, getting everything in order so we can move forward at an aggressive pace. Uh, so I, you know that Joe Biden joined Truth Social. Uh, that's Trump's platform. Um, Biden, the Biden campaign joined it. I've, I've mentioned that uh, on a few different episodes. So Donald Trump truthed this out. Uh, he said, we are heading to World War III because of grossly incompetent leadership headed by a president that doesn't have a clue, although he did have the sense to join Truth, the real voice of America. Congratulations, Joe, at least on that. Uh, Trump maintaining his sense of humor, even though he's in the middle of, I think, 500 trials or something like that. It's not really 500 trials, but it feels like 500 uh, fake Trumped-up trials to try to get Trump. Um, but anyway, he finds the time to have a little bit of humor about the fact that Joe Biden's trying to pick off the neocons that he thinks are lurking around on the, on the true social platform. Uh, spoiler alert, there are zero neocons on the true social platform. Okay, so uh, listen to a few episodes of O'Connor and Company, the radio show on WMAL in, in uh, Washington, D.C. I listened to a few, uh, the October 23rd, 25th episode. There's some good stuff on there. You got to check it out. He does a really good job of outlining uh, the Biden corruption trail, is what I'm calling it. Uh, it was he kind of based it was based on a Jonathan Turley uh, article in The Hill, um, but it outlines the uh, the corruption, uh, discuss, discusses loan repayments uh, for loans that were never made, um, you know, million multi million dollar cash payments for that he made for a house after he left office, just has millions of dollars lying around to buy a house, pays in cash. Uh, Chairman James Comer's house findings were released. Um, the uh, you know Biden's brother and son obviously got money from all of this, uh, but legally it's important to point out that they don't have to person that Biden himself does not have to personally benefit from this for this to be an, an ethics and a legal problem of bribery. Um, but he did benefit from these things. Um, also, uh, that you know, um, Larry and and Julie uh, on the uh, the episode. Um, discussed Liz Cheney. I guess she's got a, a no labels. Is it? I, it's a party or something. It's going to be not like a party, like you run around and party, but a party like uh, like a like Republican Democrat party. So Liz Cheney's going to start her own no labels campaign, where I guess it doesn't matter what boundaries of, of party line that you're in. There, you're going to find the best people to to run for whatever. And it's kind of like her no labels tour. Uh, anyway. I would expect that to fail spectacularly very quickly uh, and not to get much traction. Um, but hey, if Liz Cheney wants to run for president on the no labels platform, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I don't know what this is. Liz Cheney has not gone away fast enough. She seems to still be lurking around. Uh, and I don't, I don't understand why she's still around. Uh, another thing they discussed on O'Connor Company, they discussed uh, Chuck Grassley's staffer, uh, Jason Foster, who was targeted in 2017 by the Department of Justice for his personal records were targeted by the Department of Justice um, during a judiciary investigation that was looking into the illegal FISA warrant on Carter Page. So Chuck Grassley was leading the charge on this, and Foster was his one of his staffers that was looking into all of this too. Uh, and the Department of Justice managed to uh, surveil Foster's personal records, um, probably because he was looking into the illegal FISA warrant on Carter Page. Uh, this is more of that government corruption, deep state swamp stuff that we have uh, that needs to be rooted out. Um, and the last thing I want to talk about that came on on, on their episodes 
the fact that Joe Biden's not going to be on the New Hampshire primary ballot because New Hampshire pri- has a, a law that says they have to go first in their primary, and the DNC wants South Carolina to be first. So Biden's just not going to be on the New Hampshire ballot uh, for the primary. Uh, interesting how they how they operate. The DNC operates in really weird ways with all their you know, secretive super delegates that can. Um, make everything that happened before it not matter and pick whoever they want. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's quite a rigged deal. Uh, the Democrats are incredibly corrupt. I don't know if you've noticed that or not, but they're so corrupt. Uh, Chris DeGaulle's podcast yesterday, October 25th, uh, he talked about uh, the fact that Bud Light has had such a PR problem, and we've chronicled that for months uh, on the downward spiral, spiral that they went on after their Dylan, Dylan Mulvaney um, ad backfired, and they started losing a lot of contracts and a lot of business. Anyway, so Bud Light is now sponsoring the highly masculine UFC. So Ultimate Fighting, they're going to be doing that. That's really where they belong, right? I mean, that's the audience, baseball, football, you know, fighting, boxing, right? That's where you've always seen Bud Light sponsoring lots of events. Um, Very masculine, very male type things. Not that Bud Light is a super masculine beer. Uh, That's not what I'm saying. But they they sponsor those types of things. Um, And then all of a sudden, they kind of fell into the woke crowd saying, hey, we want to get this, this market. Uh, at the expense of their more masculine type market. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how the woke, all the woke people that suddenly said Bud Light is awesome, uh, what they think about them sponsoring a, you know, a, their hyper-masculinity events like UFC. Um, but I think that those woke people left Bud Light before when Bud Light tried to back their way out of what they had done. So Bud Light is really, they were on the verge of having nobody. Uh, you know, you've got a large group of people that was your market. And then you try to go after a tiny market segment that's at odds with the larger group. And you end up with, you know, you pick a side, but then you back out of it. So you end up with nothing. Uh, Interesting to see if Bud Light can come back. Again, I like to point out, big supporter of Bud Light for years when they were a St. Louis-based company. Uh, But when the St. Louis family, you know, the Bushes sold it, uh, it became a European company and that changed everything. they can play all they want and try to pretend like they're American, but they are a you know they are a foreign-owned company uh, with American roots that they have kind of abandoned. So we'll see we'll see how it goes. Uh, okay, so today's main topic, right? We'll get into some psychology because psychology is is I mean the reason why I do all this stuff. Uh, psychology is my left. Those of you who don't know me, I, I was a psychology professor for twenty years. I do psychology research. I have a psychology business. Uh, I'm I have a PhD in experimental social psychology. Uh, I usually do the show where I talk about some sports and I talk about some news and I talk about some random things I might have to say. Uh, and then I talk about uh, you know a psychological study or psychological research in some way uh, to kind of wrap it up. And then I talk about, um, then I go to the Patriot Brain Line and I respond to some listener um, questions or, or comments. And I have some closing thoughts where I kind of tie it all together. Uh, and that's really basically the format of the show. I know we have a lot of new listeners coming in, so that's why I want to talk a little bit about the the format of the show. Um, People may not be aware of that. So you may be 20 minutes into this podcast right now going, what have I gotten myself into and why am I sticking around? Well, I am going to talk about the psychology in a minute. Um, But welcome to all the new listeners. We have tons of listeners and they're coming through Spotify search and they're finding us. It's how they're they're finding us and they're sticking with us. And the numbers are just, you know, doubling and tripling. And now they're, you know, they just keep increasing. Uh, over the last several weeks. And it's been really rewarding to see that and to know that I'm not talking to an audience of my family and friends. Like they're in there mixed in the audience, but they're now a small proportion of the audience. 
and hopefully a lot of those audience members become friends later because that's that's happened in the past. Uh, but it's really cool to you know be back behind the microphone talking to uh, an increasingly broad audience, which I've had in, in other other venues and other projects I've worked on in the past. Um, and uh, that's always rewarding because that means we all have a voice that, uh, you know, like my, the Patriot Brain Line, where I answer questions or respond to things or co- add some comments that, you know, you may have, you may add comments to what I've talked about or whatever. Uh, it gives you a voice too. And so we amplify each other's voices. And I think that's the most important part of what I'm doing is I feel like I'm giving you all a voice. I'm throwing my brain and perspective out there for everybody to critique and come after, et cetera. Um, but I'm also, you know, kind of creating a unifying point for us to move forward and for us to be a voice together for you. So uh, thank you for listening and welcome to all the new listeners who are coming across all kinds of platforms that I can't even keep track of anymore. Uh, lots of different people coming from lots of different platforms, finding the show in lots of different ways. Um, one of the most important things though is referral because you know people like you. So if you like the show, let other people know about it. Um, all right, so to the, to the research. So this is from a Harvard Business Review article by Amy Gallo. Uh, are are you the pessimist on your team? And so Gallo gives some recommendations, and let's talk a little bit about optimism and pessimism. And so optimism is where you've got uh, positive event expectancies, like I think good things are going to happen to me. I think good things are going to happen to you. Um, pessimism is where you've got negative event expectancies. So I think bad things are going to happen to me. Bad things are going to happen to you. Uh, for example, the future event expectancy scale. One of the questions is, uh, what is the likelihood that you or someone you love will end up in in jail at some point in your life, or that you or someone that you love will end up with cancer or very sick, right? So there are questions that you're giving a probability estimate on, and you can sort out how optimistic or pessimistic somebody is. There are real odds attached to all of those things, right? That would be kind of the baseline. What are the real odds? Did I get it right? Um, But then beyond that, are your odds more favorable or unfavorable for the positive or negative events, right? So that's where you get into that. And also the way that you best look at optimism and pessimism are really two different unipolar constructs. So a bipolar construct would be one, you know, one long stretching, you're ranging from pessimism all the way to optimism. Uh, Two unipolar constructs would be pessimism is one thing, optimism is another. And that's really the best way to, to understand people is looking at, you might have, you might be highly pessimistic, but you also might have, you might be moderate on your optimism. Uh, so looking at those as two different things, think about it, you know, positive and negative event stuff. So uh, they make recommend Gallo, who's the one who's interpreting this, re- all the different research out there on, you know, optimism and pessimism, and kind of putting it together in a package with recommendations for business folks, uh, make some recommendations. So one recommendation is to under- understand your motivational focus. So she frames it in terms of, um, you know, E. Tori Higgins, uh, motivational, um, you know, uh, I guess regulatory focus is is what he talked about, but uh, promotion and prevention, right? So promotion focused people they generate lots of ideas. They're they're very positive. Prevention focused people uh, are very risk averse, right? They try to uh, stay away from risk. They they're very thorough and meticulous on what they put together, and they're extremely um, you know focused and detailed in that way. Uh, the promotion people are, are are a little less detailed on that. And so they say, you know, think about look at yourself and say, am I a promotion focused person? I'm like looking to approach things. I'm looking for new stuff. I'm very creative and, and generative or prevention focused. I'm more risk averse. I'm more thorough. Um, and then I say to, to watch out for toxic positivity too, which has a detriment as well. So, you know, people who have toxic positivity are unrealistically optimism, optimistic. They have unrealistic optimism. So 
everything's going to work out all the time. We're going to do this and it's going to be awesome, but there's nothing to back that up. They're not just, you're not just cheerleading and pushing you on to, to great things. There's like no basis for it. They're just, I'm, I'm sure nothing bad's going to happen to me. Only good things are going to happen to me and we're charging forward. And that's toxic positivity because in the face of very negative things, that's, that's not appropriate, right? It's going to lead you in the wrong direction. It's going to send you down, uh, you know, over the cliff. Uh, so you want to watch out for toxic positivity too. Uh, another recommendation that she had, identify your negative, uh, identify if your negativity comes from a toxic work environment or, you know, prolonged economic downturn, or, you know, where does your negativity come from? What are there external factors or are they internal factors that are pushing that? Um, one of the things that she you know, appropriately pointed out from the research is that pessimists feel control with their negativity. So a lot of times they're, they're feeling anxious. And so they try to exert some control over the situation with their negativity. Uh, and so one way to combat that would be to potentially find, find ways to increase your control in other areas, like find ways that you can increase your control, knowing that that will decrease your negativity over time because you're searching for that control. Another recommendation is focus on your behavior, not the behavior of other people. If you are the pessimist in the room, if you're the pessimist on the team, focus on your behavior. Uh, you still find legitimate good things. You can still always find legitimate good things to say about people's ideas. Um, you still want to be authentic, though. So you don't want to say things that aren't true about people's ideas. You want to find more positive ways to frame the criticism. And I'll, I'll get to that in a second when we talk about one of the others. Um, also, pessimists, research shows that pessimists are more likely to burn out at work. Uh, they're, le they're more likely to be less highly engaged, so that it's harder to keep them engaged highly uh, at work. Uh, and, and they tend to have fewer strong relationships with their co-workers and their managers, which now you can see the picture of a system that's, that's causing problems, right? So if you're the pessimist, and we know about the self-fulfilling prophecy uh, or behavioral confirmation that we've talked about in the past, but... That's where my expectations shape my behavior towards you, which affect yours back to me. So we know how that's going to play out in this context where if you have fewer strong relationships with coworkers and managers, now you're down a little bit more. And maybe it's because you're pessimistic or maybe because you won't approach people. But regardless, you've got that, those problems. So of course, you're going to be less highly engaged in everything. And you're also going to be um, more likely to burn out at work because you're less engaged. You have fewer friends, fewer coworkers because your negative expectations are shaping all of that. Uh, so, and then the, the last, not the last, the second to last uh, of her recommendations were to modulate your reactions. So your reactions may initially be negative to something, but instead, instead say something like this. And I think you pessimists should write this down. And I know you're thinking you're beyond saving, right? So you pessimists are sitting around going, I can't be saved. It doesn't matter, but write this down because I think this will help you. So for example, say, I hear you and that's, and, and part of, and there's part of me that agrees that this could succeed. Let's talk about what could get in the way and how to mitigate those risks, right? Well, I'm an optimist. Okay. And you, you all know that I'm an optimist. I think positive all the time, not toxic positivity. Cause I've got, I think the good blend. I'm highly optimistic that I've got the right blend of optimism, but so think about, like, I know how that would impact me. Like when I, I'm excited about stuff and the pessimists come and like rain on the parade. Well, I, I do need people with realistic expectations and, and good feedback, right? So I do have to surround myself with people that can temper my expectations and give me, you know, a clear vision of what's going to, what needs to happen. So as a business owner, I have to surround myself with people that can say like, hey, this is a really bad idea. Don't do that because of these, these things. So I can say, okay, you're right. I won't do that. So, but 
I also, at the same time, have a, it, it's a very visceral reaction when people say, no, I can't do something, right? Because like, I'm, th- I'm thinking I can do this. And I bet on myself all the time, and I'm right most of the time. So other people may not understand what it is that I have, a vision that I have, the, this thing, whatever the thing is. They, they may not understand that. So I have to you know, be forceful and be more clear, but I also don't want to push people to, to help me with bad ideas that I have, right? Anyway, so I hear that from a pessimist. I hear you. So that's validating to me, right? I hear you. And there's part of me that agrees this could seed. Okay, so there's a window, a little sliver of a window that's open that maybe this could work. They see that. Let's talk about what could get in the way and how to mitigate those risks. Well, I listened to that last part. Like I, because of the first part, I listened as an optimist to that last part. Let's talk about what could get in the way. Well, I do want to know what could get in the way because we need to either you know, go past that and fix it or maybe that's insurmountable. And how to mitigate those risks. That's a process thing. Like, how can we mitigate those risks? How can we make it where it's least likely to impact what we're doing? I want all that stuff. So I don't want to just run with the thing I have. I need to, you know, I need to be able to exactly know what could get in the way and how to mitigate those risks. But I'm not going to listen to you if you're just always saying, it's not going to work, it's not going to work, it's not going to work. But if you say, I hear you, and there's part of me that agrees this could seed, succeed. Now, as an optimist, I am listening to that last part, which is the part that I really need to hear, which opens the conversation. So I think you should write that down if you're a pessimist. And that's how you approach those of us optimists who are always on the move, always charged up, uh, and maybe not as receptive to hearing what the pessimists have to say uh, if they don't say it right. Uh, The last of the recommendations that she had was to find an outlet, uh, to vent to somebody. Uh, and of course, that shows that that feeds back into those strong relationships that you develop as well. Self disclosure will help you develop those relationships if you're venting to somebody. Now, not just always venting, you've got to reci- be a reciprocal sounding board and you've got to um, be professional about it. Don't just complain. Um, but discussing those things with somebody else can be useful to you. Or if you don't have somebody else, they recommend writing it in a journal. Uh, that'll, that'll do a couple things. One, that gives you ammunition for a lawsuit if you need one later on. Um, but more importantly, uh, you know, Jamie Pennebaker's research on, uh, you know, journaling and, you know, putting your thoughts down, even if you take it across the room and shred it right after you wrote it down, that process of creating the narrative and framing it in your mind has uh, demonstrated health benefits to you. Uh, so that could work too. Anyway, uh, interesting. I'll, I'll hit on that a little bit in my closing thoughts again, um, but that's the, some pessimism research. Uh, to the Patriot Brainline, T from Edmund said, why are BLM supporters supporting Hamas Palestine? I do not have a good answer for you on this. Uh, you know, it, maybe it's the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? We've talked about Heider, Fritz Heider's balance theory. Uh, in this case, it would be uh, they both hate the same people. Um, it could be money, right? Is there, are there shared, you know, I'm always interested in where the, the finances come from. Uh, is there a shared interest through money uh, on that? I don't know. Uh, I'm I'm really not sure um, why that's the case. Uh, it's it's somewhat curious, but then again, the moves of of BLM have been curious all along. Uh, thank you, T from Edmund, for giving me that question. Uh, listener Chris from South Oklahoma City said, "From a social science perspective, why the nuclear family? It seems that Big Brother is replacing mom and dad at a troubling rate. What sort of social consequences might you expect to see with a, a communal or institutional strategy to child rearing and socialization?" Where do you see this getting worse and where do you see this getting better? Well, it's certainly worse in the public schools when they won't listen to parents, right? And they say, no, we know better than, uh, for your kid than you do. Um, that's certainly a problem. Uh, it's a problem when 
a uh, teenage girl can go get an abortion without the parents even knowing about it um, because the, 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 the federal government believes that they know better for your child. It's a problem when the federal government can have a say in what you can and can't do as far as gender transitioning with a, a child. Uh, all of these things are, are very problematic. Um, but, okay, so that's just me ranting for a second. Uh, you know, we're hardwired as human beings for families. That doesn't mean everybody has to have a family, but that does mean that we are hardwired across time and across uh, you know, countries and cultures, et cetera. We're hardwired to have families, and that's why the species keeps keeping on. We have more humans because humans get together and have families. Uh, the nuclear family is the core of that. It's not all, there's not always two parents available to be there for a variety of different reasons, right? Whether that's death of a parent or whether that's, um, you know, it could be, um, you know, divorce, right? Obviously, I couldn't think of the word. Uh, it could be divorce. It could be things like that, right? There's a lot of different ways you can end up with that, uh, with having, you know, a, a non-traditional family. Um, but that still doesn't take away from the fact that the nuclear family is, in fact, the nucleus of everything. Uh, it's it's your little tribe uh, that you compete with for resources with all the other tribes. It gives you advantages. It gives you health advantages. It gives you physical health advantages, mental health advantages. Uh, it gives you all sorts of um, you know psychological um, benefits to having a family, uh, and that there's not really any debate over that, uh, or there shouldn't be. Uh, the nuclear family is important. It's important by every measure. So let's look at the Shakers, for, for instance. Uh, I always like to give this example. So the Shakers are, were kind of like the Quakers, um, but the Shakers um, disavowed themselves from sex. And so they were a, a, an offshoot religious kind of cult, but they said sex is bad. We're, we're not going to do this. And then they ran out of people. They, they, they tried to recruit more people to the Shakers. They come join us, don't have sex. Uh, and so, cause we're, our numbers are getting really low as we're all dying off. They died off in one generation, right? They couldn't, they couldn't convince more people to come to their cult, uh, because they just completely died out. And every church knows that every church knows that if they've got an aging congregation, they've got to bring in young people or the whole thing will, 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 will wither away. So we are hardwired for families. And in the rare instances that, that people go against that, uh, it doesn't work out well for them. Uh, you know, okay. So you asked. Chris from South Oklahoma City, you asked, what do you, where do you see this getting worse and where do you see it getting better? I, I may have somewhat answered that, but uh, specifically, let's go with worse. Um, so where do we see things getting worse? We're, there, there are not many cultures that are trying to get rid of the nuclear family, right? We are in the United States, apparently, and we're, try, we're basing that off of some other places that may be kind of doing a half-hearted attempt at that. Uh, it's, it's not going to work. You're not going to have... Uh, the cohesion that you need. So I know that, you know, communist China and Russia and places like that, it, it may appear that they can have interchangeable parts because the state kind of takes over raising the kids and now you've got them all on one page, right? But that's not the case. There's still families in those places. And if, and if um, you know, those regimes break up, then the family unit is still the thing that survives and people are out there doing their family thing. But, you know, the research that uh, Scott Atran has done where he's actually gone into, uh, I don't want to, I think he went into Al-Qaeda, but I don't remember for sure. I haven't looked at this research in a long time, but he went into um, terrorist groups in Afghanistan. And he's like, hey, I'm a psychologist. Or I'm gonna, he's an anthropologist with psychology training too, I think. He's like, hey, I'm going to give you some surveys. Is that okay? And they're like, cool, follow us around and 
study whatever you want uh, and then go back to America and, and put that information out there. But it wasn't, it wasn't propaganda. He, gave, he got to give them the same surveys that we give to other groups here. Like he got to have access to these places. And what he found was that the terrorists don't fight for necessarily the big idea. Like if you, you know, there's a big idea that's out there that's drawing people. Well, the, the scaffolding and the infrastructure are built around the idea. But when you get down to the people, the people go in and fight. They don't just lay down their idea, ideas for the, the, they don't lay down their, their lives for the ideas. Uh, what they do is they go in and they fight for their friends and family. They fight for their soccer teammates is one of the things that he said was big. Like that's the reason they go out there is they fight for their local communities and the people they know. Not just the abstract idea of that, but they go out and fight specifically for their family, their friends, their soccer teammates. All right, get that through your head. That's all based on the nuclear family and having these small tribes that build the community and, and create the fabric of the community. So while we're over here trying to figure out like what, what's male and what's female, there, there are terrorists over there who have families who are going to go off to war in their minds and do some pretty awful suicide bombing things. Specifically, that's what the suicide bombers, like breaking down why they do what they do. They do it for their family, their friends, and their soccer teammates. They're over there building that sense of community, and then they're going to come over here and try to kill us. So if we lose the nuclear family, um, we've lost everything. We have nothing. Because the nuclear family, uh, and of course, as a Christian, I would also argue that God is part of that. Uh, you know, That's the fabric of everything. So if our government crumbles, we're left with family and God is what we're left with. That's the, the unifying thing, and we can build back the government, but that's the, the community, right? And that's, and that's why uh, I worry as we get farther and farther away from that. And I think that most conservatives want a smaller, large government and a um, stronger community, and, and that's important. Um, there are reasons why we do need a large government, and the reason for that is that there are other countries out there who are chomping at the bit to try to kill us. So we do need to have a large government with a strong military presence. Uh, and smart, calculated, deliberate ways of deploying that. Um, anyway, so, but yeah, the family is the foundation of, of everything we need. Um, where do you see this worse? Where do you see this getting better? Well, I don't know that I see it getting better, but the one thing that I see, if you can even cal call this better, is that we seem to be splitting into a parallel economy. Uh, conservatives and liberals have their own businesses. Uh, they do their own business with people within the networks of their own businesses. Conservatives doing with conservatives, liberals with liberals. Um, Families, churches, uh, every friend groups—you uh, see this parallel economy that's that's fragmenting off, and that may be the only thing that saves the idea of the nuclear family. Is if you've got um, conservatives that um, that still believe in that, that make up half the country and are able to escape from you know the progressive propaganda. Uh, that may be that may be it. But of course, the, the borders are insecure with the idea that that's where you can make up from low birth rates uh, of environmentalists that think they shouldn't have families and shouldn't have kids. And I'm not criticizing anybody that makes that decision on their own, but that's part of the propaganda, right? And then we've got, they've got to have more people coming in, hoping that they can convince them to vote their way. Um, and yeah, so birth rate gets lower and you got to, that's the replacement thing. And that's the thing that Tucker got in trouble for talking about. And I know I did a podcast episode on it. Several years ago, I said, this is, this is a real tactic that they're using, uh, and, and here's, here's some evidence to support that. So anyway, I'm pro-family. I'm, I'm, I'm very pro-family. Uh, it doesn't have to be for everybody. If somebody doesn't want to have family, they shouldn't have to have family. But I'm also against abortion. So there you go. Uh, 
Thank you, Chris. Chris also sent me a Harvard-Harris poll information. That, so the, the question that was asked was, do you think that the Hamas killing of 1,200 Israeli civilians in Israel can be justified by the grievances of Palestinians, or is it not justified? And response rate, 76% uh, of people said it was not justified, and 24% said it was justified. So, oh, okay, so that's great that 76%, uh, which is hard to get on anything, uh, thought that it was not justified. But it's concerning that one quarter of the voters that were surveyed thought that the Hamas killing of 1,200 Israeli civilians in Israel can be justified by the grievances of the Palestinians. Also in that Harvard-Harris poll, do you think the attacks on the Jews were genocidal in nature or not genocidal? Same thing. 75% said genocidal, 25% said not genocidal. That's concerning, right? So, I mean, it's great. It's Like I said, it's hard to get 75% of people to agree on anything. But one-fourth, 25%, one-fourth of people thought that the attacks on the Jews were not genocidal. Uh, and that's, that's, a, that's a terrifying finding. Another terrifying finding was, how about the fact that when I type that into Microsoft Word, uh, it recognizes Hamas as a word? My, so Bill Gates, Microsoft Word, Hamas is a thing. that I, I mean, As soon as I typed Hamas, I'm like, okay, this should like have the squiggly lines under it, right? Because you know, why would Hamas be recognized in it? And okay, I had a lot of problems once when I wrote a paper on the Bolshevik re Revolution. Um, I had a lot of problems in general when I wrote that paper. Um, um, not with the professor. The professor was fantastic. Uh, I've had some good conservative professors uh, in my lifetime, uh, believe it or not. Uh, no, the problem was I had trouble spelling all the words that go into the, all the different players in the Bolshevik re Revolution. I have a minor in political science. so I, um, But anyway, I remember spell check was a nightmare. I had to just kind of not do the spell check um, because the Bolshevik Revolution had all these Russian words in it. Uh, and I was like, I just, I give up. I just, I can't even do the spell check. Spell checks were harder to do back then too because... You know, it was essentially pre-internet stage. So you know, that's that's how old I am. All right. Thank you to those who um, responded on the Patriot Brain Line. You can voice message me through Spotify for podcasters, message me through True Social, or email me at the email address listed on my website, which is theconservativesocialpsychologist.com. Independent podcasts thrive with private investments that offset the time and financial costs of equipment, software writing, producing, editing, and on-air talent. Please consider supporting my Patriot Brain with a small monthly donation. You can use the support button on the Spotify for Podcasters page or the support this podcast URL in the show description on your other listening platforms. Thank you for listening. We are strong together. Now it's time for my closing thoughts. As an optimist, I tend to see the good in pessimists. Pessimists can bring us optimists back to earth and ground our decisions in reality. Research supports this function. Hopefully, we offer this, the pessimists a light in a dim room. Of course, the pessimists might view us optimists as less darkness in a dark room, but you get my point. Till I catch you next time, play hard and have fun. Listen to My Patriot Brain on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. Follow me on True Social and Rumble. Check out my other content at theconservativesocialpsychologist.com.